Hey guys, this is Mike Shields, and this week on Next in Marketing, I spoke to Alicia Kelso, senior contributor at Forbes, and Sam Okus, editor of Nation's Restaurant News, about how the restaurant industry is permanently altered by the pandemic. We discussed the impact of delivery apps on how restaurants will be designed and staffed going forward, how brands like McDonald's are leading the way in developing big app businesses and serious AI initiatives, and how mom and pop restaurants will have to reinvent everything they do. Let's get started. Everything we know about the media, marketing, and advertising business is being completely upended thanks to technology and data. We're talking with some of the top industry leaders as they steer their companies through constant change. Welcome to Next in Marketing, presented by AppSquire. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Next in Marketing. I've got two special guests this week. Uh, Sam Okus, from the, he's the editor of Nation's Restaurant News, and Alicia Kelso, senior contributor at Forbes. Welcome, Sam and Alicia. How are you guys? Hi, good. Thanks for having good. us. Yeah, thanks. So this is going to be fun for me because I'm I'm usually knee deep in the media advertising, digital marketing landscape, and we'll we'll, we'll talk about some of that stuff. Some of that stuff, but I'm not always focused on this category in particular. So you guys are going to educate me a lot, Alicia. I'm going to start with you. It's an interesting time in the in our economy, our business, our country, that there's kind of there's a growing optimism that like, okay, maybe consumers are going to start going spending and life's going to maybe get a little back to normal as vaccines roll out and the warm weather emerges. And so many businesses are poised for growth, it sounds like in certain categories, people are going to travel again. But I imagine it's not that simple for the restaurant business, which has been just uniquely affected by this pandemic. Would you, would you say that's the case that it's not necessarily easy to snap that economy back to life? Uh, yeah, I, I think that is that is safe to say. Um, I also, I mean, there's kind of a few things happening right now, and we're starting to get um, a, a lot, uh, some deeper perspective right now because we're in the throes of, uh, you know, Q1 earnings, and and that always offers, you know, significant insight into, especially how the obviously how the public companies um, are are doing, and and what we're seeing so far is just this. Uh, just really quick rebound um, and, and really significant optimism. Um, but there are still some, you know, underpinnings of issues that are happening right now. Obviously, the biggest issue is labor. Um, and, you know, so there's kind of a paradox happening where the demand is there. Consumers are starting to get uh, a lot more comfortable dining out and restaurants, you know, they're desperate to get back into full swing. Um, but many of those, you know, restaurants are getting tripped up because they don't have the the labor to fill shifts. Um, the, those and, people that were working there a year ago just couldn't wait around all this time necessarily, right? I mean, that's part of it, yeah. And you know, there's there's arguments on on both sides that they're finding better uh, higher pay elsewhere. Um, some might have trepidation about coming back and being a, a frontline, you know, essential worker and not wanting to risk, you know. Their, their health and safety for it. And, and some people are getting more money from unemployment, um, which, which, you know, creates a whole nother uh, debate in the space about wages. So, you know, that, that has been a huge challenge that we're starting, I think, to see take significant hold right now because it's a confluence of, uh, of things happening with demand, but labor not to necessarily fill that demand across the board. Um, the second thing I think is, you know, there's there's still some lingering restrictions. I, I believe every single state is open for dine-in, but about half of them still have some restrictions, whether that's capacity or or something else. And we saw this in the fall when we kind of hit that third wave where these they've just been dealing with all these restrictions, these yo-yos, this yo-yo restrictions, you know, from complete shutdown to capacity limits and and, you know, it would seem like we're out of the deep part of the woods with vaccinations. Um, but if there's upticks or variants or anything else concerning, we might have to navigate some of those reissued restrictions. Nobody really knows that quite yet. And so that not only affects labor scheduling, but it also affects the supply chain. You know, if nobody knows what shifts labor can cover or if they only have 50 percent capacity, it's really hard to to kind of focus both on labor and supply. And then third, you know, just real quick, there's there's operational changes that are ha uh, challenges that are happening right now. Restaurants, from what I've heard so far in Q1, m most of them are seeing the stickiness of the skyrocketed digital business stick around. And this is happening as dine-in returns. 
And so for companies that don't have, um, you know, operations to fit both dine-in and digital, like Chipotle does, it's a good example. They've got a second make line just for digital orders. But most restaurants don't have what Chipotle has. So they're they're having to contend with some serious operational changes because the good news is that digital business, for the most part, is sticking around, but dine-in is returning. So there's two business channels now where, you know, a, a little over a year that, that ago, that wasn't necessarily the case. So... Um, other than that, I think the engine's starting to reignite. It's really exciting to see. Um, and and the number of consumers who say they're comfortable dining out is the highest it's been since March 2020. So um, optimism is high. Yeah, you make an interesting point of how regional it is. Um, you know, like if you talk to people in Miami, it's they're like, we've been opening crate going for it for a long time. We're in New York, it's we're just seeing some dates being set. But I, my, my it's funny, my brother and dad are both in the bar restaurant business and they're they're still a little bit confused about what they can actually do and what the capacity rules are going to be. How do how, you know, how, so that, that, that factors in like, what are we, are we going to staff up like we used to, or is it totally different? Yeah. yeah. Um, it's just, it's a real moving target. Sam, I want to bring you into the conversation. I don't know if you have thoughts on that topic specifically, or we can jump at other stuff here. Well, I'll tell you, I think Alicia really nailed it on the head um, there for most of that. You know, it's, uh, I, I think if there's anything you can glean from that, it is that, Everything here is it, the, the environment for the restaurant operator is more difficult than it's ever been because you're fighting on so many different fronts. Um, but as Alicia said, the demand from the customer side of things is there. There is a pent up demand to dine in and there is an ongoing demand for off premises business, takeout, curbside delivery. And so on the consumer side of things, you know, the, the, the dine out business generally uh, getting your food from restaurants. I, you know, I think that in many cases, QSR fast casual that snapped back within a couple months for a lot of companies last year, and they're just cruising right now. You know, there are some companies, you know, that they were up 20, 30% in 2020. They didn't miss, miss a, a They just a had beat. a little bit of a, of a hiccup. And it, and it, and it was a hiccup, Q2 right. Year, and right? if you were primed and ready, yeah, if you were primed and ready for it, like Domino's was, Papa John's was, Wingstop was, then you, you generally recovered very quickly. And that is continuing into 2021. And because there, look, people got to eat, people love restaurants. And if you have an easy way to access food in an off-premises manner, then you you can do that. And, um, you know, you're still going to go out and get your food. But yeah, from the restaurant operator side of things, they're still wading through all of these issues. And, and like Alicia said, labor right now, from what I'm hearing, is absolutely number one. It is just impossible to hire people in some instances. I wonder, I mean, this is, I'm, I'm shifting here. What, what do they do about this labor thing? Is it you have to start going for like different different pools of talent? Do you just have to like start? I mean, you can't, you can't like, it's not like they can pay through the nose for, for talent. They're, 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 their profit margins are fragile as it is, right? It's like, Right. Yeah. Labor generally is has already started to shift even pre pandemic to where, you know, of course, we're, we've been talking about $15 minimum wage for a long time. And, and some businesses have already been paying that or are at least preparing to pay for that because they understand that is coming and they're going to have to get there. So some businesses are already exploring how do we pay our employees more? And now would be a good time if they figured out how to do that. Now would be a good time to do that to get employees. Um, but listen, I got to tell you, automation is coming for the restaurant industry. And this really could expedite it. If you cannot get labor like you used to, you're going to look at ways to invest in automation, particularly in the back of the house. So you can focus your best employees on the front of the house to create a more hospitable experience, but automate as many things as you can. That's coming. You know, that's that's within a couple of years, the vast majority, I think, of restaurant positions, they'll find ways to automate them. And if you're struggling with labor right now, you better believe you're going to start looking at how can I just automate this and pay now for a machine to do this instead of paying over time for a person to do it. Okay, hold that thought on automation because I want to come back to that. Um, but at least I want to ask you something. Like, I want to look ahead, but but first, if we can look back a little bit, you know, if we go over the past, like, say, fourteen months of the pandemic, it's I, I mean, this this industry and maybe hotels and airlines were the most hit hardest, or just had so much volatility. What could have been done differently or better? Do you think, in terms of like, I wondered. I I've read a lot about this where restaurants were able to get bailout money, or they were able to to put some, you know get loans where they could hire people or, or get relief from, from mortgages and stuff. But if people have speculated, well, we should have had a targeted bill just for this industry or, or in some countries, I think they even discussed paying places to just shut down for the winter and 
not have to have the you know the the risks involved in in people congregating. Like, is there anything that we could have done? This industry could have done differently. Uh, I mean, I have opinions on it, but I don't. You know. Um, I have, go go. Yeah, I mean, about. I cover the restaurant industry, and so of course, I think that more should have been done. Um, it was one of the most uh, deeply affected, and. Um, you know, the devastation, even though we're, we're in the throes of this really optimistic cadence of earnings calls right now, at the end of the day, we still lost, you know, over $200 billion in sales in this industry and over 100,000 restaurants. And, you know, I do think that there should have been more targeting, uh, uh, targeted funding sooner um, than what we are seeing now. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to be dismissive of the twenty-eight point six billion dollar restaurant revitalization plan that that passed in March. That that is a huge, huge deal. But you know, again, for those a hundred thousand plus restaurants that didn't make it, it was just simply too little, too late. You know, and, and the competitiveness competitiveness of that loan um, is 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 just dire because of it. I mean, I think the SBA said that like forty-one thousand people registered for it in the first hour that it opened. And that was pre-registration. I mean, it was, it's just insane. And that just underscores the desperation uh, for the industry um, in, in trying to, to get by, you know, I, I, again, I think that there's this was a light for at death the end. to get those for those guys. Yes, to get that there's yeah. a light at the end of the tunnel here. Um, but you know, $10,000 in rent every, every month adds up. And, you know, we had the, we had the PPP loans and in my opinion, those were band-aids and, and there were so many issues with the rollout and there were vague stipulations and, you know, a lot of operators had some trepidation about ap applying anyway, because some of the language was really complex. And for the mom and pops that don't have a legal team or, you know, an accounting team, that's, that's time that they don't have and money that they don't have to spend on that time. And I know that, you know, during the first round of the, the PPP loan, just 8% went to the hospitality sector. And, it, and there, so there was a disconnect in the devastation that we were seeing in the restaurant industry and the amount of money that went to the industry in, in those first few rounds of federal help. Um, and I think if the government is going to mandate a shutdown, then there should be some type of government solution. And, and we just haven't really seen that. Um, I think this kind of came to the head again during that third wave that came in the fall, you know, and this, I think, became an especial, especially large issue as the CDC itself, you know, released a bunch of research that depicted a correlation between dining out and rising cases. So I think all of it was just a, a really, really, it, it, they were working behind the eight ball since day one. And I, I think it was just a little it, too little too late um, based on what we have. Again, that's, that's my opinion. So they were get, you know, to, to play devil's advocate, but on myself, they were getting significant pushback from mayors and governors um, about locking down economies again. And I, I think that every decision that that's been made in the past 14 months has been challenging and not necessarily arbitrary, as many people think. I think that there's been a balance in most of it. But since I cover the restaurant industry, I was hoping for a little more. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, some of these choices would just seem to be, you know, between really two choices, with two brutal choices with tons of ramifications that are hard to see. But yeah, it is, it's hard to feel good about the way it's gone. Sam, looking ahead, maybe you kind of touched on this. You know, we've seen, uh, certainly even before the pandemic, you were seeing, uh, you just lots, lots more push in, in delivery of, of e-commerce was growing. Supermarket delivery was growing. Lots more people were using seamless and grubhub. But, um, but we, we, we constantly talk in this this podcast about this, this pandemic has accelerated X trend and it's not going to go back or it's going to go back a little. Do you have a, do you have a sense of like how much of what we've seen was just circumstantial or restaurants trying to get through this time and will not, and will change versus what trends were, or business realities will will stay the same. Kind of depends on what kind of restaurant we're talking about and what category of the industry, right? Um, to your point, yeah, I mean, the last year really expedited trends that were already 
happening, right? And it's, you know, I've said this before many, many times, but it's so funny to think about how well-timed this pandemic was for the restaurant industry in some ways. If this pandemic had happened seven or eight years ago, a lot more restaurants would be screwed, right? Because, you know, DoorDash, if this happened before DoorDash and Grubhub existed, they would not have had that lifeline. Now, that relationship, of course, is pretty challenging, and we could spend a whole podcast talking about that. (laughs) But the point is, is regardless the third-party delivery services provided a lifeline for a lot of restaurants. And so um, had that not been there, we could be talking about a totally different situation. But online ordering, mobile ordering, apps, e-commerce, all of this, we were heading in this direction already. And so, you know, what really happened was, you know, the way a lot of the restaurant companies have phrased it was basically like three years worth of innovation got, you know, expedited to about three months. We all heard that from a lot of folks. And what that means is, you know, I, I talked with, you know, Wingstop, they talked about how they had aimed for, you know, 65% digital orders in, you know, three years, and they got there within basically a month of the pandemic because out of necessity. Now, with your question about, you know, how much of this was circumstantial, there are elements of this that probably will um, prove to have been circumstantial. For example, fine dining restaurants doing delivery and takeout. You know, maybe they decide that, was not, that, was that my it's next not question. for them. Do they like to be in the Grubhub business or are they just like, this is fine for now, but I really don't want, I don't want to, I don't want to live this way. I think a little bit the latter, right? Because a lot of them, they just needed sales. And so they were going to do whatever it took to do sales. And so, um, you know, for them, they turn to some of these solutions and when dining comes back and it will, there is pent up dining demand for dining, maybe not to the extent it was before, but people will dine in restaurants again. I think a lot of, especially fine dining and more, um, you know, mid-scale casual restaurants will probably walk back some of this stuff now. But if you think about it, you know, you think about the virtual marketplace, And you think about how many more millions of Americans are participating in the virtual marketplace than they were before. So you're talking about third party apps, talking about restaurant um, proprietary apps, um, you know, just ordering food from their phones. The potential there is really seemingly limitless. And so, you know. I think that um, that is a huge silver lining to this pandemic is that millions more people who had not exist, who had not um, discovered the power of uh, the virtual marketplace and of ordering food from your phone that are now doing so. And it became a habit for them. They are going to stick to that um, convenience and they're going to continue to pursue that. And so, so again, for some restaurants, they might decide, look, this was operationally too much for us. The packaging, the systems that we all had in place, like we're ready for those to be gone. We're going to go back to dining. That will happen for sure for some, but I think the muscle that a lot of restaurants really added over the course of the last year, they're going to stick with it because they've got, um, now this huge base of customers that they can tap into in ways that they didn't have before. For some of them, this will just be incremental sales moving forward. On that note, I want to ask both of you guys this question. What about the real estate question slash the configuration question? And I'm specifically thinking of, you know, personalizing this, but there's like a Starbucks near me that was built most as most are for people to hang out. And, and now it's essentially a drive-through place that no one hangs out in. And you've seen this at Chipotle's and other places where they're, they're built for a large seating capacity. And then they've like had a makeshift mobile orders uh, counter and it's kind of a mess and doesn't work efficiently. Like, are we going to have to see a, a whole, I don't know, rethink, rethink of how restaurants are designed and the real, the real estate that they occupy? Yes. Yes, no doubt. Um, <laughs> and, I, and, and I, Yeah. Well, yeah. Next question. Um, no, I think for sure, because like when you think about it, like the amount of off-premises business, you know, and when I say that, of course, I mean, delivery, takeout, curbside, um, you know, the amount that will still stay high. I believe that restaurants are going to see an elevated amount of off-premises business and a decreased amount of dine-in. Again, I believe dine-in comes back, but I believe it comes down probably at a lesser level, particularly for QSR fast casual. So for QSR fast casual that were already designed around off-premises business, that were already doing maybe 70% of their business doing drive-through, and now more people are going to probably do drive-through, yeah, it makes a lot of sense to start looking for smaller um, real estate to shrink the size of your footprint to really lean into off-premises. And, you know, the implications of that are insane because like when you get into talking about ghost kitchens, which we can talk about as a whole separate thing, but, you know, you think about what you can do out of a small footprint it's so much more than what you could do a year and a half ago. And so absolutely, if you can save money by shrinking the footprint and then, you know, prioritizing going out the drive through window window or through a third party delivery service or whatever that might be, you know, you're going to take a long, hard look at that for sure. 
Why don't I'm going to come <laughs> yes. to Lucia, but what, <laughs> what give, it. I think do most people know what a ghost kitchen is? I guess, I guess they do, but maybe you guys can just de- define what that is. I don't know if they do. Um, I think that <laughs> consumers, I think consumers access their food wherever they are. And I don't think they're caught up in the definitions of what, you know, restaurant nerds like us are. Um, but, you know, <laughs> it, it, so tell us what you mean go- by that. Ghost kitchens existed well before the pandemic. They were a fledgling segment and the pandemic, like Sam said, just accelerated it, you know, years within months. And basically a ghost kitchen is a delivery only restaurant. And, you know, we've seen the channels of digital or uh, delivery and everything ordered via uh, digital um, accelerate, uh, you know, by triple digits in some markets. It's just been a staggering growth out of necessity because consumers couldn't dine out. So they could only access, you know, their favorite restaurants through delivery or if, 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 the, if a drive-through wasn't available. Um, and so a lot more uh, companies started exploring, you know, ways to meet this off-premise demand and fill holes in markets that they potentially wanted to expand in without the, you know, the hefty upfront cost of a brick and mortar uh, location. They basically just would, you know, they, they've just been renting these spaces explicitly to make their food uh, for delivery and, and in some cases pick up that, you know, and, and this, this has proliferated in such a way where our independents have been using uh, ghost kitchen type models to, to add a revenue channel but, you know, Chipotle and Wendy's and Chick-fil-A have all experimented with it, too. I mean, this is across the entire segment. I want to be careful, though, because there is a difference between ghost kitchens. And again, this is the this is really granular level definition. But there is a difference between ghost kitchens and virtual kitchens. They're often lumped in the same segment and perhaps they should be. Um, but a virtual kitchen, I think, is a far more intriguing conversation here because it doesn't require the cost of even renting out that kitchen just for delivery orders. It is using underutilized kitchen space that already exists. So we've seen like major companies like Brinker International is is the best example I can think of off the top of my head. And Brinker owns Chili's. And a few months ago, they launched a chicken wings concept called It's Just Wings. And uh, I think there's like 3,000 of them now. They're, they're just, it's this, it's just wings is available on, you know, a, a, a delivery marketplace on your phone and it's run out of Chili's restaurants and offers. It's not branded delivery. Chili's though, but it's using their facilities. It's not branded Chili's, but it's using underutilized kitchen space and it is incremental, just in, like 10 to 15%. I mean, it's, it's crazy how much um, this is added you know, to the, to the company and, and it's, it's spawned some copycats. I mean, Applebee's has a cosmic, cosmic wings now. And, you know, virtual kitchens is, is I think a really fascinating um, narrative that we're going to see. And we're, we're not just seeing the big, the big players jump into this. We're seeing, you know, YouTubers jump into this. It's, it's a low entry point concept that has added a revenue channel and frankly, has helped some restaurants, independents specifically, stay afloat. There's a statistic that I find really staggering about this space. It's Euro, Euro Monitor International actually came out and forecasted a one trillion dollar uh, segment um, in in ghosts and slash virtual kitchens by 2030. So that that just kind of gives you an idea of how um, how much this is growing. But this, that that feels, and I don't know, I you know, I don't know the space as well as you guys certainly. But if I, that feels like that could go away if Chili's and Applebee's start packing in the place and they need the whole kitchen, is that a very short term thing, or do you think they'll be able to? These national chains will be a, will be able to permanently carve up some space and use it for these sub brands. Sam, I don't know if you have a take on that. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree that virtual concepts are going to be here to stay, but. You know, this depends because in the Brinker example, and it's just wings, I mean, it was doing enough sales that you could justifiably 
open a whole square, you know, a whole um, footprint just doing that concept. Um, I mean, it's like they birthed a baby concept out of their concept <laughs> and, it, and it's going to start walking, you know? So um, there's a ton of potential here, no doubt. Now the 1 trillion figure I have just, um, yeah, there's no way, <laughs> like there's no way the restaurant industry itself has never hit $1 trillion, but you know, point taken that there's a ton oh, of potential wings. here. And yeah, it's a lot of wings. And trust me when I say that the vast majority of virtual concepts are wings because it's really cheap and easy to do. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, I think the point here is going back to my comments about the virtual marketplace is like Alicia said, you have very little overhead to do a virtual concept because you basically come up with a logo, a name and a product. If you have a kitchen to serve something, you spin it up on DoorDash and you are going. You can do this literally in about a day. You've got a network already built in automatically. Like you've got it built in. And and what we've started to see restaurants do is break apart their menus, brand them specifically uh, give them a new branding and they're basically expanding their real estate on DoorDash. And so you're seeing restaurants now that might have four different concepts under one roof that they've developed proprietarily. And then all of a sudden they can occupy chicken, burgers, sandwiches, wings on the DoorDash app. So they're, so they're, they're all playing the game here with those, with those virtual marketplaces. Um, now, another thing that's really fascinating, I think Alicia was kind of hitting on this too, is you know we, it's rolled into this concept that has become known as host kitchens to where if I'm a franchisee of Subway, let's say, and I've got some off hours, you know, there are now uh, a bunch of virtual concepts that will, um, I can license a virtual concept and start serving that out of my Subway kitchen to make a little bit of revenue on the side. And so the implications of what you can do with these digital services, basically all you need is a kitchen and then from there, everything is limitless because the digital services provide you all these tools to spin up all of this, um, all these new brands. Now, one thing I will um, caveat all of this with to say is, I, there have been uh, estimations that there may be over 100,000 virtual concepts now that have spun up in the last year. Now, think about the, the competition that exists. Well, in that was my, how do you get, how do all those guys, if you're not early on Seamless or Grubhub or whatever, that's got to be get, get yeah. harder and harder, right? How do you get discovered? Yeah, It's, it's like being an early YouTube star versus now, right? It's like. Right. So we're working through all those things now. And I think, you know, you're going to get into things like SEO and you're going to start, you know, there are going to be certain premium rates you're paying to your third party delivery to kind of get a better spot and all of that. I think ultimately the all of this um, mellows out. It, it settles down once we get back into more dine in, but it's going to be a niche that is going to be significant niche for years to come for sure. Alicia, what happens, you know, we're talking about how there's some signs of optimism and people want to go out again and it's feeling, people are feeling good, but <laughs> that that doesn't apply to people going back to the office, at least uniformly. It's going to be very different, I think, by region. And, and there is such, I mean, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. There's such a huge economy of restaurants and takeout places that were built around office centers, especially in big cities. What happens there, if anything? Is that is that just is that just deep trouble, that that economy? What happens next there? You know, that's that's the million dollar question I think brands are trying to figure out now. And we're starting to see some early signs of strategic shifts in response to um, some of those office capacities going away. Starbucks is, again, one of the best examples here. Um, you know, they they have shifted a big focus uh, back to drive throughs uh, which they never really had a huge presence uh, with in the in the past, drive-throughs in uh, suburban markets. Um, right. Starbucks was supposed to be the third place. Like you went to, correct. You hung out. There. I don't think that's that's not going to go away. Starbucks, they're not going to pump the brakes entirely on third place. That's what they're known for. That's what they hang their hat on. And and you know, I think when you talk about pent up demand, that demand exists for community hubs in urban settings, um, whether or not the, the eight to five office crowd comes back at a hundred percent, there's still, you know, there's still a, a, a desire to have some socialization, um, perhaps, at, you know, for happy hour or, or whatever. Um, but we are seeing a, a significant amount of shift to more of a suburban uh, slash rural play uh, for some of these brands that have never even really thought about it. Shake Shack is another great example. I mean, Shake Shack was born out of the urban setting and, 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 you know, was, that was their MO. And uh, now they open, they just opened their very first drive-through um, I believe in January. 
um, and they've got plans for for many many more. Um, so I, we're seeing the shifts, but I I, I think um, you know I think Sweet Green also opened their their drive through, and that's a great case study in office worker, um, you know, in the office workers sort of dissipating because Sweet Green they were hit by over seventy percent when this happened because that is their bread and butter that clientele they 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 open their spaces right next to huge corporate offices and um so now they're exploring drive-throughs and so we're going to see the strategic shift continue um i think especially for those sort of daytime uh starbucks sweet green kind of places to more urban and even in some cases rural settings um but i don't think uh, i don't think urban centers are going to completely go away especially for um, for places that can offer, you know, a sort of a happy hour uh, menu or even a nighttime menu. You know, you, you made me think of this bringing up Shake Shack. Um, it's a little bit off topic, but maybe not. What do you, what did you guys make of the guy who runs Shake Shack, Danny Meyer, used to run 11 Madison Park in New York. I don't, I don't think he's involved anymore, but it's, that, that's a big restaurant that's coming back. They made news that they're going with a totally plant-based menu. What do you make of this trend in the business right now coming at this time where, you know, we're, we're, there's a whole generation of people that really um, worry about sustainability and the environment and, and the morality of meat eating or not. Yet it's, a, it's at a weird transition where the industry is trying to get back on its feet. Like, what do you think happens there, if at all? Sam, I'll start with you, but maybe both of you guys want to jump in. Yeah, it's been really interesting. I've been really curious how this is going to play out because this was probably the number one thing we were talking about pre-pandemic was mm -hmm. plant-based meat alternatives. And it really felt like that conversation hit a wall with the pandemic because it's, the conversation changed. We weren't talking about, you know, things like plant-based eating anymore. We were all yeah, talking about operations. people needed a comfort eat too. <laughs> needed their bacon for a little ex while. That's exactly right. And so this has been sort of my hypothesis through the pandemic, which is, you know, will people shift so hard over to comfort foods and cheap eats, right? Because the other thing is when we had so many millions of people suddenly unemployed, yeah. you know, when that happens, when recessions happen, that gives a lot of fuel to QSRs because suddenly people are, are starting to pinch pennies a little bit and, um, you know, they're going to trade down. And so my hypothesis was, you know, if we are entering a recession and if people are anxious and they're looking for comfort food and they're looking for cheap comfort food in particular, the plant-based could in fact go away. I mean, at least for a time, that was kind of my hypothesis. But on the flip side of that, you know, there was this theory that, okay, well, like to your point, you know, we could see, you know, people focused more on health and sustainability because, you know, especially, you know, we were talking a lot early in the pandemic about how those, you know, with conditions such as obesity were suffering more from COVID. So that could lead to more healthful lifestyles. And I, I just gotta be honest with you. I don't think there's a clear answer here how that's all played out and how, you know, I think it's, I think the easy answer is to say that we're going to get back to a point where plant-based eating is once again, dominating our conversation. It, and it, it's probably already getting there. And I do think as we come out of the pandemic, I think the, everybody's talking about the roaring twenties that's going to happen that, you know, we all kind of hope happens. Yep. And I think a big part of that could be a renewed focus on health because we're all going to burst out of our homes and, you know, want to just go like take charge of the world and stop watching Netflix. Right. That's, that's my new hypothesis. So plant-based eating, no doubt will be a huge part of that. Yeah. At least you I know. don't know if you have thoughts on that. I wonder, well, is it going to be the roaring twenties where you party or you take, or oh, you yeah, really get for healthy? For me it is. <laughs> for me it will be. Um, there's been such an interesting paradox, um, of consumer trends and studies throughout the past year. I mean, we're going to be, we're going to be dissecting this for, for years and years to come. And every conversation that I have with executives, it just, it, 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 it kind of makes me, make me laugh a little bit because the pandemic was a catalyst for consumers. Most of them say based on studies to think and eat healthier and to pay more attention to the environment. This is, this has been reiterated by independent studies across the board. We want to be healthier. We want to eat healthier. And we are more conscious of the, of the environment because many you know, people believe that it was exacerbated by climate uh, issues. Simultaneously, we're eating 
droves of pizza and mm-hmm. buckets of fried chicken. Yeah, the, and you just talked about the wings exploding. Big Macs and everything. I mean, and 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 we're ordering delivery and not really caring about the packaging implications that come with it. So no, or the gas guzzling cars. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a paradox that's happening here. I will say this. I think that when we see um, really high end sort of fine dining one unit um, restaurants in New York City uh, go this way, that doesn't mean the industry is going to go that way. Uh, And I don't know if that that has really big implications for sustained change. What we are seeing, however, is, you know, Burger King, for example, just came out with new packaging news today. Uh, those are the companies that are going to enact change in this from a uh, from an environmental uh, perspective, and that includes plant based. You know, we saw Pizza Hut add uh, a plant based uh, pizza. We've seen KFC experiment with with chicken. Most every major fast food or fast casual has an option now um, for a plant based op- uh, you know menu item. It still hovers between two, two and five percent of the sales mix, but there has been an increase. And most importantly, it's the veto vote, um, you know, that people offer this so everybody can go there. And I think that is in the operator's best interest more more than some of these environmental implications. I don't want to be dismissive about those environmental implications, though, because I think uh, ESG has become significantly important. Um, and I think that major restaurant chains are being taken to task because we finally are understanding how, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the, this food production, the volume of food produced at these major chains is really affecting uh, certain things as it pertains to climate. And I think that they're making some, some, you know, mindful changes uh, uh, accordingly. And we've seen that in this past uh, most recent wave of, of um, sustainability report releases. There's some really ambitious goals out there. So interesting topic. I agree with Sam that we're going we're gonna to see this sort of, I think, accelerate, especially in the next few years. I, I wonder about this. Like I, when I look at like pictures of my parents and everyone was smoking and I'm like, oh my God, what the hell is going on? And, and I wonder if my kids are, are, are my kids going to look back like, what was with all the meat eating back then? Or, or is it, is it going to be, you know, just a small, you know, still a niche thing, but by, by that, I'm not, I'm not sure. I want to make sure this isn't the next marketing podcast. We should talk about marketing a little bit. Sam, I'll, I'll start with you. How the restaurant industry, you know, I, I think of in terms of marketing, either mom and pops didn't do a whole lot of, uh, you know, national advertising, of course, but I was, I think of the classic, this was a TV war and everyone, you know, McDonald's was trying out to Burger King and stuff like that. Of course, now you've talked about app distribution is so crucial. And, and then over this past year, so many of these brands were trying to push their own apps. How has, uh, this is a very broad question, but how has marketing changed? And what do you think, what's the future of the trying to make everybody log into your own product, your own app versus using third parties versus some kind of other lead generation uh, technique. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. When you think about early pandemic, especially, I was talking to a lot of folks about marketing as it related to, you know, for starters, when you think about restaurants, especially QSR, um, you know, they're irreverent, fun, um, you know, and that like disappeared immediately, right? Because suddenly everybody had to take a much more serious tone. Unprecedented times. Yeah, I mean, so content wise, they had to quickly pivot to to talk to their customers specifically about how safe they are. And it's specifically about, you know, steps they're taking to protect their employees and their customers. And that, you know, I don't think that changes. I mean, that's going to be a part of sort of the marketing arsenal of restaurants going forward is here's how safe you are dining with us. Here's how clean our restaurants are. Here's the food safety standards that we have and the protocols we have. But, you know, talking about sort of format, you know, very, very, very high level. It was interesting how at the beginning of the pandemic with everybody, you know, the commute going, away you know you saw things like billboards and radio suddenly were like not nearly as important because people weren't spending time in their cars right and suddenly tv became more important and of course social media became more important because people were sitting on their couches with their devices and their tvs now one thing i think if we you know looking at the future of where all of this kind of goes because all of this is kind of you know we've we've sort of normalized a lot of these things you know the the sort of irreverent attitude of of restaurants has come back i mean i think people were ready for it after a couple of months of the pandemic but specifically about formatting again you know 
the mobile device is king here, right? So all, all the more so we are conducting so much more of our lives on our mobile device. So as much as you can market to people through their personal devices, you know, the better. And I think one really important thing I'll, I'll point to as being key to the future is loyalty programs. Because, you know, it's, it, you know, talking about proprietary apps versus third party, third party, you don't own that experience and you very likely don't own that data. And there's very limited things you can do about that. Now, when you do it through your own proprietary platform, you own all of that, right? And so the way to hook them and get them to conduct business on your pl on their platform is through a loyalty program. And that you're seeing a lot of restaurants go this direction by developing a, a loyalty app. And it's, it's an ordering and loyalty app. So you conduct the whole experience through your phone and then they collect your points for you. They learn everything about you. And then they you can start pushing notifications saying, hey, see that you've had the salad three it's weeks ago. It's your relationship. Yeah. You want to get the burger this time? You know, like you can, yeah, you're, you own the relationship. And so I think marketing is going to be very focused around talking one-to-one, -one, you know, to your customer through your proprietary platform. Of course, all the other things are going to uh, play a role as well, but as much as you can make that focused on each individual customer through their personal device, the better. Oh, Alicia, all those things don't sound super easy for the average mom and pop. Like I'm sure, you know, Lots of restaurants, lots of small, small restaurants would probably had a Facebook page before all this and maybe we're doing Instagram, but they, I don't know if they burn to be worrying, be DTC companies where they're trying to think about, you know, churn rates on their app and trying to think about how to reach people and search with search ads. But is that, is, is that part of the deal now or are they going to have to change the way they run their businesses? Well, I want to go back real quick to something Sam said, because it just kind of triggered this memory that I had that, you know, and I'm sure he probably echoes some of the same, you know, experience that I had just from covering. But I just remember those first like two months and like, oh, I have to write about plexiglass again. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, the, the the marketing started coming back. And I specifically remember, I think it was like late May or early June and KFC uh, came out with their Crocs, like, yes, we're back. <laughs> and then, and then, That's absolutely you know, fun again, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, and then, and then McDonald's had the, the Travis Scott, and it just seemed like everything, you know, was right in the world again because we, we got back to some normal uh, uh, marketing. But look, I 100% I, I agree with Sam. I mean, the loyalty uh, factor here is going to become the story uh, in the restaurant space, we're seeing that. I would argue as McDonald's goes, so goes the industry. And I think they spent like 80% of their time on their Q1 call talking about how excited they are about their loyalty program. They're getting that personalization and that one-on-one -on -one messaging through, largely through artificial intelligence, which is an entirely new conversation that I think we could spend an entire podcast on as well. Does that put independence at a disadvantage? Yes, it does. Um, that That's not to say consumers are only going to go through McDonald's because McDonald's is speaking to them a little more personally. you know. There, but I do think that there is probably, it, it, at the very least in the near term, there's going to be a dichotomy here in the industry as independents will come back slow. They'll come back, but they'll come back slowly and they'll come back with significantly less, you know, cash on hand and you know they're not they're not well capitalized traditionally um but these consumer behaviors have shifted so abruptly now that their expectations are that personalization that digital marketing that uh you know they're going to find um the big well capitalized brands literally everywhere they are and that includes their mobile phone uh, both through their own you know proprietary or white label apps and through um you know, uh, third place delivery marketplaces too. Um, many, m several brands are, um, uh, you know, increasing their marketing efforts through through those uh, marketplaces because they know that's where consumers are. I don't know what I want for dinner. I'm just going to go to DoorDash and there's going to be a whole thing, uh, you know, whole yeah, menu I want of some, options. Some somebody make the decision for me, right? It's hard. Yes. So I think that I, I think independence could be at a disadvantage there, but I think that they're, um, you know, I think that they're an advantage and that the pent up demand exists. And I think, you know, the uh, customers don't want homogeny after this. They, they, they've been eating at chains and their drive throughs for a year. They still want those unique creative socialization spots. And I think they're going to, they're, I, I think that that's going to balance this out. 
That being said, I think independents are more willing to open their wallets for some digital play in the marketing, uh, you know, environment. Uh, because before, I think where they, you know, there's always this this narrative that restaurants were so far behind and, uh, you know, retail in the tech space because you know we there's the five percent at most margin. Um, and the return on investment was never quite proven. That has been spun on its head. We we know there's a return on investment now. Uh, we know consumers are mandating um, some of this digital stuff um, for access, and that includes online ordering. That includes online payments. So I think mom and pops they they basically had to get a crash course in some of this digital advertising and ordering and payment, and they're no longer working. From behind the curb like they were in in 2019. Sam, Alicia Brooke mentioned, and I promised I'd br- I, would br- I was going to bring it back to the AI conversation. Talk to, what, what are people not thinking about or understanding? Because I, I don't think it's a natural that people people think of AI as, as like, you know, big enterprise software engineering projects and they don't think about it the restaurant business, but it's happening. But it's such an, it's, it's an industry that's so known for its personal touch and, you know, service and hospitality. Talk to me about how what people don't understand about how it's going to impact this this business. Yeah, well, the easiest way to talk about that is to talk about its implications in something like the drive-through, and this is where we started to see that um, start to take root even before the pandemic. You know, McDonald's made huge waves a couple of years ago by investing in an AI company to primarily leverage in the drive-through lane. And so, when you think about AI and how it can affect your ordering experience in the drive-through. You know, it could be as specific as reading your license plate as you pull onto the lot and saying, hey, did you want the number one like you got last time? Because it knows what you ordered based on your car and your license plate or how McDonald's employed it was, you know, the the menu board is dynamic and changes according to time of day and according to weather patterns. And it starts to understand, you know, the, the customers better. Um, and then, of course, you can also do things like have the speaker be a an AI, the, the speaker box. Customer might not even know it. It's so good now. And um, what are the implications for the customer? Well, it's a it could be a more perfect experience. You take a lot of the human element out of that uh, interaction with the AI over the uh, speaker. They get your order perfect because they are AI. When you're up at the menu board, you're going to, going back to what Alicia was just talking about, you know, helping you make your decision a little bit better because it's going to kind of curate the menu for the customer and you're not left with such uh, so many things you're looking through to decide what you want to order. Um, and on the restaurant side of things, you know, you can pull the employee out of the window. You don't have a drive through employee anymore. And so, yeah, I mean, to your question about this is a very hospitable industry and a lot of restaurants, you know, your Chick-fil-A's of the world are never going to get rid of that person in the speaker in the window, you know, talking to the speaker. It's never going to happen because this is their bread and butter hospitality. That's their brand. But for those yeah. companies who... Yeah, if those companies who want to save on the labor and and invest in technology that is going to be higher performing than a person because you're going to get your accuracy darn near 100%, it's going to be very appealing. And so, yeah, I mean, AI seems like this very big, crazy, expensive thing, but we are getting to a point where, no, no, you're probably going to be experiencing AI in the vast majority of your retail and restaurant experiences within the next couple of years. It's already happening to companies like McDonald's. Guys, this has been a terrific conversation. I want to wrap it up on this one. I'll throw this at both of you because we're, we're running short of time. We could talk about this stuff forever. But three to five years from now, are we looking, at least start with you, are, you, are we looking at a permanently smaller industry? Do you have hope that we can, it'll be the same or bigger, but different? Like, where do you think things are headed? Yeah, I, this question's really, really interesting um, because I think that there was a need for retrench, retrenchment um, before the pandemic. I, I certainly wouldn't hope that that would mean 100,000 plus units or, you know, 200 billion plus in sales and the devastation. Um, but we were oversaturated in this industry. And what the pandemic did was shine a really bright light on, especially, you know, from the chain landscape. It, it, uh, there is a, a really bright light that was uh, shown on how uh, underperforming units can drag down an otherwise healthy system. And so, you know, we had the independents that, that closed because they just weren't well capitalized and, and uh, they didn't have the tech infrastructure to make it. 
Um, but I think the interesting narrative from the past year has been that big chains like Starbucks and, and Pizza Hut, and they, they, they were able to retrench by hundreds of units because this gave them, a, you know, an opportunity to close those underperforming units. And I think they'll come out stronger and grow uh, sooner than later. Um, and, you know, those growth plans are very evident on these earnings calls. Um, you know, and I think it's going to be a steady climb back that is driven uh, by by this growth from healthier systems. I also think that the demand for mom and pops is going to be a nice steady uh, uptick uh, back too. I think that this industry will rebound. Whether it gets back to that $900 billion pre-pandemic level, I think that's the question. But I think permanently smaller I, I would never say that the restaurant industry is going to be, it's not going to come back stronger than ever. And, you know, one other implication, I know that we're short on time, is the mom and pops, I think they have license to come back. I think customers are 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 demanding that they come back and they come back, you know, changed with better business models and more insulated operations and, and you know, so when when we think about a rebound here, we're thinking about a not just a not just a rebound, but a rebound from a stronger, more resilient operator set uh, from the independent level um, through chains. And I think that is a really intriguing narrative that I'm excited excited to watch. I think that there, this rebound is going to be exceptionally strong, and I think it's going to be sooner than most of a, most of us expect. Sam, final couple thoughts for the next few years. You know, the analogy I have used for what is going to happen is in baseball, you know, the the batter that is on deck puts that donut on their bat to swing it a few times, then they take it off when they get to the plate, and it's that much easier to swing at the ball. I think that's what we're going to see for restaurants. They're going to have gone through this insane year, and it's going to have given them a lot more muscle that when they get out of this, they're stronger, they're more efficient, they're more nimble. They have ideas for the future of the restaurant industry that were going to happen already. And now it's been forced upon them. And now it's going to be a lot more in their comfort zone. And so, yes, I believe the restaurant industry comes back. There's no doubt about it. Who knows how long before it hits that, you know, sales figure it was at before. But um, but the way people engage with restaurants, that's changed forever. And honestly, it's probably changed for the better. Well, that's a hopeful note to end on. Alicia Sam, thanks so much for a terrific conversation yeah. and, and being game for going a whole bunch of different directions here. Thanks a lot for your time here today. <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thank Good you. to see you both. A big thanks to my guest this week, Alicia Kelso, senior contributor at Forbes, and Sam Okus, editor of Nation's Restaurant News, and of course, my partners at AppsFlyer. If you like this episode, please take a moment to rate and leave a review. We have lots more to bring you, so be sure to hit that subscribe button, and we'll see you next time for more on what's next in marketing.